Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S. New Age Metals Incorporated is a mineral exploration company focused on the discovery, exploration, and development of Canada's largest primary platinum group metals, PGM deposit, the River Valley PGM project, located in the Sudbury region of Northern Ontario. The company also has a lithium division with five lithium projects, of which three are drill ready. The company's philosophy is to be a project generator explorer with the objective of optioning or joint venturing their projects with major and junior mining companies through to production. Harry, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having us on again, Ellis. It wasn't too long ago that we were discussing your lithium division, and it seems somehow under my radar, at least, that you've made another acquisition. Let's talk about that. We are working in Manitoba, about 100 and some kilometers, basically northeast and west of the capital city of Manitoba, Winnipeg. And we are focusing around a pegmatite field, which is quite famous because it has a mine called Tanko, and it's been in production since 1969. Our lead consultant, and has been for two years to help me assemble these claims, and now is basically heading up the field operations this summer, is Kerry Gillischuk. And Kerry spent almost 12 years as the exploration man for the Tanko mine in terms of looking for lithium, tantalum, and cesium. So we have a very, very talented man in, in the lithium group metals, and we've assembled a package of five properties up until last week, and we've just added a new one. Now, this is a very strong announcement. It establishes you as a real lithium player in Manitoba, Canada, and in North America, especially with respect to hard rock. This potentially bodes well for shareholders, doesn't it, Harry? Yes, it does. I believe it makes us, and I stand to be corrected, but I think with this new acquisition, because it's uh, thousands of acres, and we already had thousands of acres in terms of five projects, let's make it six. I think we're the largest landholder in this famous pegmatite field. And again, for the listeners, we look for pegmatite. In the pegmatite, we look for a mineral called spodumene, and in the spodumene, you find the lithium, but you also find other rare metals or rare earths, and that would be tantalum, cesium, and other paying minerals. So it's a very famous area, and now as a junior company, we have one of the largest land bases. But most importantly, we have a partner that is funding us. That's interesting because I was going to ask you how it changes the share structure of the company. What's it going to cost? That sort of thing. We wouldn't mind an explanation. Let's just talk with what is a project generator when you look at a junior mining company. It's a company like us that put a lithium division together two years ago that basically put it around a top geologist, which we had to have first, who understood both lithium and other rare earths. More importantly, he understood this area because he had a pedigree working for the biggest mine for many years. And then we were in early enough in the hard rock rush that now is in Manitoba. And it's a big rush. There's about six other companies in there now that weren't there before us. So we started it, basically. And that's part of the reason we just acquired this property because we didn't want anyone else to get it. So as a project generator, our objective is to go and put together a package, do enough work on it, uh, properties, and then find a partner. 
And so we probably did that uh, after about a year of looking for the right partner. In January 15th of 218, we signed an arrangement, which I call an option joint venture, with a company called Azencourt Energy. They had properties in the uranium sector and great place to be, but the last couple of years have been kind of beaten up pretty badly because of pricing. Uh, I actually sold my shares of the biggest producer of uranium last week, believe it or not, else to buy another junior company uh, because it just wasn't moving. Do I believe in uranium? Yeah but I think it's going to be a couple of years for it to go. So Azencourt came in and the structure of the deal is that they have an option over a period of years to give us quite a few shares in the millions to get 51%. They now have to spend $2.1 million. The structure of the deal we had is each time we add a new property within a five-kilometer area of interest, they must pay for the staking and the acquisition of that property. They must issue us an additional 250,000 shares of their stock, and they must also spend an additional $250,000 to the gross amount we had on the first five properties. And they also have to pay us a 2% royalty, which we wouldn't have had on that property. So this year, the biggest part of this announcement was we were only going to spend 500000 of our partner's money this year, and we bumped that from five hundred to 600000 So a lot of moving components here. We went from five hundred to 600000 as a guarantee into the different projects we have. We get an extra 250,000 shares. We get a 2% royalty on the property we didn't have. We're the field manager, so using Kerry's expertise, we get 10% of what goes into the ground to manage the properties through a contract that we have, through a management committee which we meet regularly, and very soon, the most exciting thing is we're going to be back in the field again. How do you manage all this, Harry, as the CEO of your company, everything that's going on there? Let's talk about your team, and then I want to ask you about the PGMs. It's all about a team. I mean, no one man could do this. The beauty is, and my wife certainly questions me sometimes when I get up at 3.30 in the morning, certainly mostly from January right through June, because we're financing, we're doing these new acquisitions, we're just even having a meeting with our partner, a field manager thing. I go, and I think they'll tell you this, I spend enough time with Carrie to do an excellent meeting. Everything's documented, the minutes are done, and we agree with our partners what we're going to do. They have the final say because they're putting the money in, but with the type of expertise we have with Carrie, they obviously know he's a top man. And even that takes a lot of time. We've had three of those meetings since Christmas. And even to get into this new acquisition stuff, we had to get their approval and all the rest of it. So that takes a lot of time. But it's about having a great team. And if you look at our board of directors, I think one of the finest for a junior mining company. Kerry is not on the board, but he's our lithium consultant. But as you know, our main thrust going forward is we have the largest undeveloped deposit of its kind in North America. And that's a primary undeveloped platinum group metal deposit where palladium and platinum are number one one and two of the many metals we have. Believe it or not, rhodium, and and this is something you get moving as fast as we have. We haven't looked at it lately. Guess what is the number one performing metal? Last year, it was palladium, which is still doing exceptionally well. Platinum's moving up. That's our second most important metal. But one of the third or fourth most important metals in this River Valley project that we have, that we own 100% of, is rhodium. And I just looked the other day, it's up 21% this year. And guess what? We have a lot of rhodium, too. Cobalt is the number one performing metal this year, and this project, believe it or not, the River Valley Platinum Group Metal Deposit also has millions and millions of dollars of cobalt. Okay, so I'm sitting around here thinking and listening to you and wondering, and knowing that part of the world a little bit, I'm thinking there's probably a nickel story there. Well, it is, because we're right out of Sudbury, and one of our fourth most important metals is nickel, and fifth is copper. So when you look at the metal suite in River Valley, what people have to understand is we have about eight paying metals. 
the primary one, that's why we can probably say we're the largest undeveloped primary platinum group metal deposit in Canada, where palladium is number one, platinum is second. Believe it or not, the third metal is gold. And then we do have nickel. We do have copper because we're less than 100 kilometers away from the largest metallurgical complex that's still running today in Canada, that their primary metals are nickel, copper, and PGMs and gold and all of the others come second. Our metals are primarily palladium, platinum, and all the other metals come second there too. But when you start looking at a major deposit that has millions of ounces in the ground, and that's a new study that we've just done, and just briefly in the next week or so, we'll be able to let the listeners go on to what we call CEDAR in Canada, and we'll be putting the final report for the most recent calculation we had on resources and reserves on there, and they can look through a document that's about 120 pages. Outside of a resource calculation, what would this 43-101 be pointing to. What's your next major milestone on this big undeveloped primary resource? Yes, after we get the 43101, which is our most recent resource calculation done, the next big milestone for the company, and it's a big one, Ellis says, the first time we're going to put economics on this project. Now, in the old days, I think most of your listeners, especially Americans, would know the word scoping study, and then after scoping study was pre-feasibility, and after that, was the feasibility study. In Canada, we've changed the name of the scoping study a few years ago to a preliminary economic assessment. And this is a big study. It's the first time it wraps around the economics on a project. It looks at pit wall design. And keep in mind for the listeners, what we're trying to do is develop a series of open pits over 16 kilometers. We essentially have our own mining district, less than 100 kilometers. That's about 62 road miles outside of the largest complex of its kind in Canada, the Sudbury Metallurgical Complex. And we eventually, through these series of open pits, want to concentrate on site and ship our concentrates to Sudbury. So this next report here, and we've told our shareholders that we're working towards this preliminary economic assessment, again, the first economic assessment on the property, and what we're trying to do with that, basically, is get it done by the end of the first quarter of 2019. Well, that's fairly aggressive. That's essentially less than a year away. It's less than a year away. We now have all the material we need to do it, and you'll basically see us talking to third-party engineers in the next couple of weeks. As you know, there'll be a lot of people want to do this project, the preliminary economic assessment. And around that, our shareholders are going to get other news. So there's certain areas that need to be drilled. This 16 kilometers is not drilled out by any means, but we're focusing on the northern portion to open up the first couple of pits. So there will be some drilling news starting in the summer in the fall and all this news towards the economics and you know we're doing a lot of other work we're going back and prospecting in the next couple of weeks you're going to see a big geophysical report come out that we've been working on all winter and just a lot of news coming and of course that doesn't talk about what's happening in the field and the lithium will be out there drilling on two old deposits a lot of news there and we're in alaska as you know so there'll be news coming out of there so lots of news it's literally coming every week now right through the year so i'm okay with this knowing that you're a project generator that's what you do. That's what we do. The big project, everyone says, well, why are you still working on River Valley with your own money? Well, once we get through this next hurdle, the economics, again, for the listeners who think, you know, in the U.S., it used to be scoping study, pre-feasibility and feasibility. Once we do what is now called, the scoping study is now called the preliminary economic assessment, then that opens us up to be able to find, again, a project generator, a very big company to help us put this thing to production. And Ellis, as I've probably said before, as a CEO since I was a young man, I've signed 
43 deals with the largest companies in the world to help fund different projects. So I know how to do these deals. We've decided to do it on our own money to get to this next stage, and then from there we'll be talking to partners. Well, Harry, never a dull moment. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. Talk to you next week. Thanks for having us again, Ellis. Really excited about it now. The big thing here is we're getting back in the field. We're finally going to work. There isn't a geologist who likes to talk about this stuff. They like to get out there. And I'm not a geologist, but I'm always excited when we get the grass is getting green here now. We had a really late spring, and we're going back to work on all of these projects right out in the field and starting to generate some real news. I've been speaking with Harry Barr, the chairman and CEO of New Age Metals, trading as NAM on the TSX Venture Exchange and NMTLF in the U.S. For more information, go to the company's website, newagemetals.com. I'm Ellis Martin. We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me for a conversation with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Triumph Gold Corps is a mineral exploration company currently focused on its 100% free gold mountain project in Canada's Yukon. This road accessible property is located in the Dawson Range Gold Copper Belt, host to the Casino Copper Deposit, the Coffee Gold Deposit, and the Plaza Gold Prospect. Triumph Gold Corp has a leadership team with a collective history of exploration success as well as capital raising ability. John, welcome back to the program. Great, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your air again. What's been going on at the Free Gold Mountain Project? Well, since I last saw you in Hong Kong, we had just started a drill program. It's the earliest we've ever entered the property on a calendar year. We are doing three holes around a giant step out that we had last year that confirmed a major porphyry system that surrounds our, or really envelopes our big resource. So we're pretty excited about what we might find there and that will really dictate what we do for the rest of the summer. How soon do you believe that we will see results from that project? Realistically, getting assays, I would say probably another month and a half because of the winter conditions that we had. That's why we've gone in there early is we wanted to circle around one hole and that was the big discovery hole in the Kirsten zone. As much as things are going very well technically from a geological standpoint, they've been very tough with the weather-wise. The drilling was really slow a little behind schedule, only because the spring is coming early in the Yukon, unlike what had happened in eastern Canada and the United States this year. So you were able to hit the drills sooner because of an early spring? We started the winter program because it was cold and we could actually drill in an area that was more conducive to drilling on ice. And, and then when we started, unfortunately, we did get hit with a little bit of the thaw, which affected our second hole. But we're back on schedule now, and that'll actually help expedite the rest of the, the summer's program because of the weather we're starting to see up there now. Now, you and your geologist must have eyes on some of the core, but you really can't talk about it yet, can you? The first hole that we drilled was to test the theory and see which way uh, the fluid in the core would be running. And that was a success. And that allowed us to go to our second hole, which we've just completed and starting on our third hole. So we're pretty excited about what we've seen. And the true serum, the assays will be coming out probably in about six weeks. But we're definitely excited about what we're seeing around this giant step out the Kirsten zone and still plan on doing the rest of the 18,000 meters we have planned this summer. What other areas of the property are you drilling? Certainly you're not limited to just these three drill holes. No, the Kirsten was the giant step out, and it confirmed this big porphyry system. So we are going to go back and test 
a couple of the hits that we hit last year, particularly an area between two placer creeks where we think we found a potential source for some of the placer mine where the gold was hitting in bismuthinite, which is a, a black host substance. We did metallurgy on that and had a fairly significant intercept of seven meters of, of half an ounce material. That was exciting and we're going to go test that. But there was a number of targets that Tony found last year and we wanted to follow up on in particular the, uh, the Irene zone that was opened by placer miners in 2013. We did some trenching in the past and fairly extreme high-grade vein system, and, and we're going to test that as well. And then also the tinted deposit, which is at the far south of the property, very similar to Rock Haven's closet deposit. It's a polymetallic system. We extended the length of it with soil sample and trenching, and we're going to drill underneath the successful trenching we had last year, as well as underneath the old resource that we had. So a lot on the go, and we're doing this over a very methodical period, methodical approach. You mentioned polymetallic. I'm assuming gold equivalent. Do you have any idea of what you might find? The graves are there are, are a lot sexier for the odd investor that is worried about what your grade is. It's a combined metal value, so we're drilling three, four grams gold, plus we're getting two ounce silver, really good zinc and lead numbers as well. Very consistent with what Rockhaven has, and if we can continue with the same type of grades that we have at the tinted deposit and hopefully expand that deposit and hopefully have wider veins and hopefully hit some parallel veins like Rockhaven has, I think we're onto a deposit there that would be a standalone feeder for the rest of the project the lower grade big giant bulk tonners that we have on the north end of the property. Do you think you'll be able to find the source of that alluvial, the placer? Is that what you'll attempt to do? God, I hope so. <laughs> but realistically, yeah, we're onto something. We're not saying it's going to be the source for all the gold in the, in the Dawson Gold Ranch, although it is rated the Revenue Creek, and most of the revenue that has come out of the Dawson Range from Plasterminer comes from that creek, the Revenue Creek. We didn't name it. That's what it's been called for over 80 years, so we're pretty excited. In fact, we're really excited. We can't ignore the fact that at least five of the majors have come in and put a footprint in the Yukon. How does that potentially affect Triumph? It's brought a lot more awareness. We joked about it when Goldcorp came into our company after they bought Kamenak. A lot of people in the industry call it the Goldcorp bump, where everyone got a big bump in valuation and more awareness. Subsequent to then, you saw Newmont show up with an aggressive project. Derek's obviously there as well. Tech is our neighbor. They've been there for a long time. They haven't really worked the property, but they own everything north of us. And then you've got Coraline that bought a 10% interest in Rockhaven. And if you just go to Whitehorse and see who's hanging around there, the Yukon, I think, is really woken up and it's exciting to see. Several months ago, the Canadian government allocated a significant amount of funds for infrastructure, roads, etc. for the Yukon. What else has happened? Last year, Prime Minister Trudeau came up with the premier of the Yukon and announced a $500 million infrastructure program for access throughout the Yukon. The first $280 million of it was really set aside for the southern end. And where that is, is where there's been access granted already, primarily our road. We are one of the only projects with a government-maintained road that goes to our property and right through our property. And the first stage of this infrastructure program is upgrading our road to a two-lane, 80-kilometer long road from literally from the Klondike Highway to our property and right through our property. And that's supposed to start later this year. The second phase would be the extension 
from our property up to Gold Corp and Western Copper's property. And that's really because of the baseline studies that have been done, all the engineering and all of the uh, environmental approvals have been granted. So that won't be really done until one of those two companies moves in with their projects. But we're really excited for it. We're the, really the first beneficiary of that program. Well, that's interesting because some of the media pundits that happen to be geologists have said that the Yukon is problematic because of weather and infrastructure issues, making many projects uneconomic. But that's just not the case at all with regard to Triumph Gold. No, that's been a little thing we've had up our sleeves. And I think proof in the pudding is just what we did last summer. We did 13,000 meters and we spent under $3 million doing that. And I look at a lot of our competitors in northern British Columbia and the Yukon, and they spent two to three times on the same program. And it's not because we're more efficient. It's because we can drive all of our equipment, drive everything right to the property. And last year and as this year, we can drive the trucks and, and drill rigs right to where we're working. And that cost benefit is astronomical. Since you've taken over the company, John, a while back, you've done quite a bit with it. Looking at the price of gold now, where it sits around 1330 or so, how do you feel about the economics of your project, the market? What would you say to potential investors looking at not just your company, but gold in general? And I mean gold equities. I'm pretty excited about it. Why we got behind this is we knew the property. We knew the amount of money that had been spent on it. We were involved in it as investors and really liked the opportunity in 2015. Might have jumped in a year early. Goal was at 13.10 and subsequently went down to 10.50. We knew the project and a deposit doesn't get up and go away even in a bad market. And we knew that the market would come back and this had a valuable asset with over $40 million spent on it and the teeny market gap it had. That was the opportunity. And then we got a really big reevaluation when Gold Corp came in and it wasn't going to be the little Triumph team trying to go out and arm wave and saying they've got this great project. Bringing Gold Corp directly into the company even validated that. I truly believe we're going into a rip-roaring market. I think we're going into something that parallels the 70s. We've gone through a six, seven-year correction from its last peak. And I think we're going into a 20-year bull market in the metals. And we have a project that is extremely well leveraged. No debt. We own the rights to the project till at least the year 2035 based on the assessment work we've done. And based on the exploration we did last year with the three discoveries we have on the property on top of the resource that we have, we are so excited about the future. And we think we're almost in that right here, right now move of the commodity cycle where you're going to start seeing more and more investment into it. Well, John, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. And I look forward to seeing you up in the Yukon. I've been speaking with John Anderson, the chairman of Triumph Gold Corp, trading as TIG on the TSX Venture Exchange and TIGCF in the U.S. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gary Cope, the president and director of Barcelli Minerals Corporation, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Barcelli is a Canadian-based junior mineral exploration company with an impressive gold, silver, and copper exploration project on renowned mineral trends in Sweden. The management team of this company is widely recognized for the identification of La Preciosa silver gold deposit in Durango, Mexico 
for Orco Silver. Gary, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks for having me back, Gales. Let's give our audience a quick overview of the company. Well, Barsley Minerals is a joint venture with Agnico Eagle in northern Sweden. We're building a, a big gold deposit that Agnico Eagle's aggressively drilling and building ounces every day. And we're covered. It's a 55-45 joint venture split, which we're covered until pre-feasibility without having to put out any capital. Which means that Agnico is picking up all the expenses and doing all the work. They are, and will be until they can deliver a pre-feasibility to us. And at that point, it'll be a 70-30 joint venture split with us having to contribute 30% of the costs. Fantastic. Now, let's talk about Sweden. You don't really hear too much talk about it in the mining industry, but it's one of the best jurisdictions in the world. The infrastructure is amazing, and it's very rich in minerals. It is. A lot of people don't know that Sweden leads Europe in mineral production of all minerals. It's a very mining-friendly country with you know rich history of mining. Now, you would think that the taxation in Sweden might be very, very significant, but it's quite the opposite with regard to a mining concern. It is. It's a flat 22%, which is one of the lowest in the world, and with no NSRs or no extra taxes or anything on the mining. And of course, the political risk is non-existent. It is. It's like you said, it's one of the top two jurisdictions in the world with them and Finland going back and forth as number one. If you don't mind, I'm curious. I don't think I've ever asked you this question. How did you find the property? Uh, We had a shareholder in OREC who got wind that this project might be available. It came from a company called Northland who made a decision to try and put some iron ore mines into production in Sweden and raised a a billion and a half and found out it wasn't enough and ended up going bankrupt. And we were fortunate enough to be on site at the time and got a really good deal, we thought, and also bought an NSR off them that we still hold in Oryx. Now that's a strategy more or less with your entire group, with the Belcara group. You look for opportunity where other people perhaps need to move on. Yeah, our model is to look at exploration projects that we think can get to a size that will attract one of the major miners. We've been successful. We sold La Preciosa in Mexico to Coeur, taking it from virtually no resource to 275 million ounces of silver and ended up in a bidding war and, and eventually selling it to Coeur. Of course, a bidding war is a good thing. It's always a good thing. Now, some of those shareholders that were involved in Orco, are they involved with Barcelona? They are. Uh, our Orco shareholders, there was a move from Orco once it was bought out to move into Oryx. And then Oryx, we spun Barclay out of Oryx one for one. So the Oryx shareholders became Barclay shareholders, and a lot of them had Orco previously. What does the share structure look like for this company? I think we're about 126 million shares fully diluted with a market cap right now of just around 100 million. Our last warrants are coming due this month, and uh, after that, the company's clean as a whistle. Who are some of the major investors? It's very tightly held. I think our largest shareholding would be Ingalls and Snyder out of New York. They own somewhere around 50 million shares. The next one would be U.S. Global in San Antonio, and uh, they own just over 10%, and then it would be management with also well over 10%. What can we look forward to as a shareholder, which I am during the next year? Much more drilling from Agnico. Hopefully some exciting news on some new deposits that they have found and are pursuing now, and a new update at the end of next year, which we hope will grow as much as this year's update did. Well, Gary, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today in the program. I've been speaking with Gary Cope. 
president and director of Barcelli Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as BME and the U.S. as BRSLF. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Douglas Bartoli, President and CEO of InPlay Oil Corp., trading on the TSX as IPO and in the U.S. as IPOOF. InPlay Oil Corp. is a growth-oriented light oil development and production company based in Calgary, Alberta. InPlay's activity is focused on large oil in-place pools with low recovery factors, low declines, and long life reserves, targeting the cardium formation in Alberta. The company has a strong balance sheet, allowing it to weather commodity volatility and develop its extensive inventory of horizontal locations. I sat down with Doug recently here near our home studios in Santa Monica, California. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us in Santa Monica today. Well, thanks very much for having me. If you don't mind, give us a background on the company. So, uh, InPlay Oil, we're a junior oil and gas company from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. And we're a light oil company. We're a growth-focused company. We're going to have top-tier growth amongst our peers this year. We're in two of the most exciting light oil plays in Western Canada right now. So, uh, yeah, we're in a great spot. Everyone knows that Calgary has gone through some tough times in the past, and uh, that's turned around quite a bit, hasn't it? Well, it has in some respects, specifically on the oil side. The light oil side has been good with the increase in the commodity price and our dollar still uh, at a lower level compared to the U.S., so we get the benefit of the exchange rate. I mean, on the natural gas side, the guys are still having a little bit of a tough time on the egress, but right now, not a whole lot of our concern. But but all in all, I I would say things are better than they have been in the past few years, that's for sure. Quite a bit has changed. Justin, since I've seen you last, last July in Vancouver, let's talk about that. As far as what's changed with us is uh, we had a really great second half of the year. We focused on drilling in the Williston Green Cardium area. Had great results, great growth uh, exiting the year. We now have 80% of our production coming out of the Cardium. We're getting strong cash flow out of that play. We also purchased about 120% more land in the exciting new East Duvernay Shale play and purchased just under $15 million in land last year. We did a small financing of $10 million to help pay for that. Yeah, we're very excited about that play. We drilled a well late in the year and it's going to be completed here in the next month or so. It's pretty exciting stuff. Now you mentioned revenue. Are you profitable? Fill us in. Generally, we're profitable at these prices. I mean, we, we do have some hedges in place in the next little while, the next quarter or two that are reducing the profitability by a little bit, but not very much. And uh, you'll see us really start to crank it up in the second half of this year. As far as profitability, cash flow is going to be strong. We're taking all that cash flow and we're putting it right back into the ground, which is in turn driving us with that top decile organic growth that we're expecting on the light oil side. Now, one thing about oil compared to mining, and by that I mean gold, base metals, precious metal, that sort of thing is you find oil, you can take it to market right away. Yeah, it's a funny business. We're actually pay invoices on 60 to 90 days after we start drilling and completing a well. And we're actually producing and making money before we even start paying our invoices. So yeah, it's instantaneous bringing in cash flow and starting to pay off your expenses. What do these new land acquisitions potentially mean for the company? The East Duvernay play, we're 
specifically where the most of the land was bought. Again, very exciting play. There's been about 15, 16 wells drilled in our vicinity over the last year and a bit. We expect that to double close to 30 wells from now to the end of the year, including completion of our one well. It just keeps getting delineated by uh, other guys. The results keep looking better and better and more and more exciting. Now with that said, I take a look at this play and this play has the potential to be one of the the newest, most exciting light oil plays in North America here, especially on the shale side. So it's in the very early delineation stages. So far, you know, there's a few sweet spots and, and we seem to be in one of them where we're getting really strong initial results. You got, I just love large oil in place and technology working for you, and that's what we got going here. Large oil in place, uh, again, you know, when I say technology, we've done it everywhere. We've improved specifically the completion side of the business in any shale play. And that's the key in these plays in the startup is, is optimizing the completions, figuring out what's the, the best way to complete these wells to get more production and to get more EURs per well, to get more recovery on a, on a per well basis. How long is this sustainable, really? Are you going to be a producer for quite some time? Is there an exit strategy? Some of us want to know. We've always maintained that we were building the the company to sell. And if we build a strong company, uh, a solid, sustainable company, it will sell at some point in time. So that still is the plan. We need some increased capital coming back into the industry, into the oil and gas side. And that's typically happens with increasing commodity prices and increasing bullishness on the sector. So in the meantime, we keep growing this company, I think somewhere between six and 10,000 barrels. And uh, when we do see that uh, M&A activity come together, you'll see us looking at an exit. We've done that before. We will do it this time and we'd like to do it again here. So that's the plan. When you say you've done it before, everyone wants to know, of course, about the management team. So tell us about your past successes. We had a company called Vero Energy. We started it, went public in 2005. In January of 2012, we had, basically we started with 600 BOEs a day. We grew it to over 10,000 BOEs a day. In January of 2012, we uh, sold all of our gas assets, about 7,500 BOEs a day. And then we came out as an oil producer for the rest of the year. And we ended up merging with a company called Torque Oil & Gas in in November of 2012 so we sold it to them it was actually excellent timing when we sold it to them because I think we sold it them for three dollars and today they're trading five six years later around the dollar fifty so uh, it was good timing on the exit there and and uh, generally made all the shareholders some money you know I didn't really expect this to happen but oil prices have certainly taken a, a leap even considering all the alternative fuels sustainable energy and push for electric vehicles in the market right now are these prices sustainable well I, uh, I definitely do think they're sustainable. I think there's been a lack of investment in uh, larger scale projects. There's a few projects out there, including the Permium, that get all the attention right now and they've had some strong growth. But again, with those type of shale plays and that strong growth comes large declines large capital to maintain the production and uh, even gets more difficult to continue to grow specifically at the same paces. With that said, you've got, you seem to have Saudi Arabia and Russia working very well together in ensuring that the OPEC and the uh, Russian cuts are, are staying in place till the end of the year. And they're even talking about some sort of unique partnership going forward to maintain a, a price that allows them to get a, a good return for their barrel as well. So there's lots of good signs out there. You know, it really looks like supply and demand is coming in line. You know, and of course you always still do have a lot of geopolitical uh, risk going on right now. Iran is one of them with that being in the media here lots these days. So it's an interesting industry, but basically I think a lot of the guys are saying, uh, you know, over the next few years, the biggest thing and, and a lot of the big guys and the big companies, and there's been some big hedge funds uh, talking about it, is just lack of large capital 
into new place, something we haven't seen in years. And that typically takes a long time to develop those plays, and uh, you're just not going to see uh, see any of those type of plays develop in, in a sort of short period of time. What about the demand for oil? Do you see that dissipating at all globally? So the demand is continually increasing. You know, there is the electric cars and everything else that's going on, but I think the EIA and the IEA both have under predicted the demand growth. And even this year, they're talking, I think they originally had around 1.4, then 1.5, then maybe 1.6 million barrels a day of growth. If you really dig down deep in the numbers, it looks like there's probably closer to 2 million barrels a day of growth. We're starting to see some growth in Europe a little bit again. Asian countries are growing. India continues to grow. And again, I mean, you know, you guys here in the U.S. are having quite a, uh, a business boom with the lower tax structures and, and everybody's working with that. Spend more money and, and travel to more places. Again, I can see the, the demand continue to grow here in the U.S. as well. So I don't think there's anything practical or realistic that can offset that demand for quite a while yet. Well, certainly I heard that Ford and GM are going to mainly focus on large SUVs and uh, limit their production of smaller cars. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, but that's been happening for years. I mean, they're doing it because the demand for those vehicles is there. And it's, it's amazing how many people have been buying the big vehicles and not gone to the more fuel efficient vehicles uh, and the small vehicles. So yeah, they're just going to where the demand is. And that, again, that just bodes well for, you know, continued decent pricing in the oil industry. You mentioned funds. Sprott's involved. When I met you, it was at the Sprott Conference of Vancouver last July. Tell us about your major shareholders. We have great large shareholders in place. Our largest shareholder would be a company out of Calgary called Jog Capital, and that would include one of their prime investors has gone alongside them in us, and between the two of them, they own about 30% of us. And then you got Sprott Resource Holdings out of uh, Toronto, and they uh, own just over 10% of us. So the, the two of them are just under 41%. They've been solid shareholders from the beginning. They've gone with us through the 2015 and 2016 timeframe when things were difficult. We've turned that corner and 2017 was a really strong, solid first year as a public company for us. 2018 is even looking better. I mean, I'm excited about what's going on with us. Let's talk about the share structure of the company. Pretty basic. We have 67.9 million common shares outstanding. We have 72.8 million fully diluted. All that is is straight stock options, specifically long-term incentives for management, employees, board of directors, etc. So very simple share structure. Why in general do you think our audience should consider taking a look at InPlay Oil as a potential investment opportunity? Well, I mean, uh, right now InPlay is, uh, I would say it's uh, a value play, a valued company. We trade a multiple or two below most of our Canadian peers. But with that said, we're in the top decile of growth amongst those peers, all within cash flow. So we got high-end growth. We're a value play right now. We've got the oil prices working in our favor. As you see the oil price start to get a little more consistent in this 65 plus, maybe even higher range, you're going to see us increase spending and start to spend maybe a little bit more than cash flow and even grow higher than we are. Instead of 23%, I'm hoping we're going to spend a little more capital drilling two to four more wells before the end of the year, and you're going to see us grow 35, 40% prior to the end of the year. You couple that with increased cash flow on the growth, and you know I think we're going to be a solid investment that uh, people will be very happy with. Well, Doug, it's always great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the program here in Santa Monica. Thanks. Pleasure's all mine. I've been speaking with Douglas Bartoli, President and CEO of InPlay Oil Corp., trading on the TSX as IPO and in the U.S. as IPOOF. For more information on the company, go to their website, InPlayOil.com. I'm Ellis Martin. 
Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for an impromptu, unedited telephone conversation with the mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. Mickey, welcome back to the program all the way from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for joining me today in the program. Hey, thanks for having me once again, Ellis. You're from Missouri. You went to school at the University of New Mexico. You travel all over the world. Certainly you can live anywhere you want. Why do you stay there in Albuquerque? Number one, I think I like the climate. I grew up in an area that was hot and humid in the summer, so I had to get out of there. Uh, as a geologist, there's lots of rocks to look at and lots of mineral deposits and just about every kind of rock in the world. So from that point of view, it's nice. And I live in a, of a farm in the South Valley of Albuquerque. So I live in a green belt, live in the green ribbon that goes from north of Salida, Colorado, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico and something on the order of 2,000 miles. And there's this green ribbon that's a mile to two to three miles wide. And so even though I grew up in a high human environment, I choose to live where there's water. There's a ton of mining projects in Arizona, many of them, and of course Nevada. And as much geology as, as there is in New Mexico, why aren't we seeing more projects there, or am I just not aware of them? Well, there's certain always projects here, but I think there's a number of reasons. We don't have the mineral endowment specifically for gold that Nevada does. Although we have big copper deposits, we don't have as many big copper deposits as Arizona does. And there's also more onerous mining laws here, and and they're not really onerous. They're just more difficult to uh, explore projects and develop projects here. And there is a very strong NGO-funded environmental opposition oppose everything in New Mexico that perhaps we don't, certainly don't see in Nevada, and with the exception of a couple of places, specifically around Tucson, you wouldn't see dedicated opposition in Arizona. Even though we've had a mining-friendly federal government in the last year and a half, and there's a Republican governor in New Mexico, that's not changing the dynamic at all for mining in New Mexico overall, is it? Well, there's a difference between exploring and mining. You know, we've got big mines, and we've got tremendous oil and gas assets. New Mexico is now the number three oil producer in the United States of America, and we're going higher because the place to be is in the western portion of Permian Basin. We have potash mines that profit or not, depending on the price of potash. We have a big molybdenum mine that is kind of a part of the swing for Mali. So when Mali prices are high, it operates, and when Mali prices are low, it goes on care and maintenance. We've got a uranium budget that is unsurpassed in the United States, but uranium's in the toilet. And like I said, we don't have a lot of gold deposits. We do have one in particular that is huge, uh, well over a million ounces, but it's in Santa Fe County, and Santa Fe County is full of a bunch of transplanted, rich Hollywood-type folks who are going to oppose anything that would basically you can't mine in Santa Fe County. So I think it would be more along the the idea that our mineral budget is not particularly oriented toward gold and 
leave it at that. That's too bad. I know that Santa Fe County is more prolific than a lot of the surrounding counties. And it's always been my opinion that politics there or the environmental groups just keep it out of the way when the Canadians and the Australians that pretty much dominate the mining industry worldwide have very stringent environmental laws that they have to adhere to, especially for the exchanges. So uh, the public really is never aware of this and everything that we consume comes from the ground. So anyway, that's my two cents. Right. Oh, Alice. Yeah, you can't operate in Santa Fe County. They've shut down a couple of projects, actually more than two. Uh, You can't even open a new gravel mine in Santa Fe County. So once again, it's transplanted Californians for the most part that have brought values that don't really reflect what we would think of as rural New Mexico values. But that's just the way it is. That's funny. I don't know really what I am right now. I'm a transplanted New Yorker to New Mexico many years ago in the 70s, and I'm a transplanted New Mexican to California right now. (laughs) I've lived here for a long time. I don't share the politics, so... uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm sort of blowing in the wind. Now, you mentioned rare earths, and this was a sector that you were quite involved with several years ago, I think seven or eight years ago. Are you involved now? Do you see something returning that's much more sustainable since the EV dynamic, the battery chemicals, battery minerals dynamic has changed specifically in the last two years. Are you investing in that space? The answer to that is no. Certainly the paradigm has changed once again regarding rare earths, but I think the successful rare earth companies, if they exist and Actually, I know I'm a shareholder of one. They are more concerned now with not exploring for rare earth deposits because we did that and it didn't pan out, even though we discovered world-class heavy rare earth deposits, mainly in Canada, some in Sweden, etc. They are too far from infrastructure. They don't have simple metallurgy. So now the emphasis has progressed to where can we find stockpiles of rare earth minerals or rare earth containing minerals that can be processed with known technology and certainly those exist. There are significant monazite resources in heavy mineral sands, tailings throughout the southeast U.S., and so it becomes a matter of where you can build a cracking plant for monazite, a technology that's existed since the early 1900s, and where and how can you separate those rare earths and then dispose of the thorium, which monazite contains, which is slightly radioactive, but is regulated in in the U.S. by the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Council. So based on that, not a player in rare earth space, and I don't anticipate I will be. You know, we got in earlier, we made our money, and we got out. That was so 2000 and. 11, let's say. And that's what you do, really. At the end of the day, with all the knowledge you have as a geologist, it's really about value for your portfolio and your subscribers. Absolutely. We're trying to make money. We make no bones about it. We mine the stock market. We're not looking to invest or speculate in explorers and stick with them through the mining phase because mining is a really tough business. And most of the money is made by contrarian analysis and getting into plays early before the general public finds out about it. All right. So as a contrarian, which I know you are, what are you excited about right now? Western U.S. Gold deposits in the Western U.S. And that is specifically a product of the Trump administration and their easing of regulations and their streamlining of bureaucracies. You know, it's basically a can-do versus a can't-do federal bureaucracy that we were burdened with 
during the Obama administration. So focused on past producing mines in the western U.S. that have been spun out into new juniors by the majors. Now you're welcome to talk about any of the companies that you're involved with or you can just, uh, you can tease your website. Well, <laughs> I'll throw a little tease out there. I cover Trilogy Metals, operating advanced copper projects in Alaska. I cover Ely Gold Royalties, which is a, let's say, a hybrid royalty prospect generator company with 70 projects in Nevada. I cover Allegiant Gold, which is a spin-out from Columbus Gold, and they control 10 projects in Nevada, 14 overall, I think. Uh, They're drilling at their flagship property right now in Nevada. And finally, I cover, just to keep the Canadians happy, I cover Eagle Plains Resources slash Taiga Gold for that spin out Taiga Gold. And SSR Mining, former Silver Standard, is drilling as we speak in Saskatchewan on those properties. So people can go to my website and the musings page and see my detailed analysis of all those companies. So we're going up to the Yukon in July. Uh, that should be another adventure for us. Well, I'm going up in June, Ellis. You might be going in July. No, I think I'm going the, in June, too. I'm sorry. You, you'd miss the Dawson <laughs> I get City uh, Conference. So. Why do we like June it 24th. there? June 24th. Why do we like it there, Mickey? Well, number one, it's Dawson City, so it's a fun place to go and spend time. But it's a one-day conference, and it's a banquet, and you get to uh, look at on the order of 15 different Yukon explorers and and see the progress. I've been up there the last two years, and I'm going again to see how some companies that have interesting projects are progressing over the last year. And we're also going to be visiting in a couple of weeks at the International Mining Investment Resource Conference in Vancouver, the Cambridge House Conference, and that's always a good time too, isn't it? Absolutely, and I have a presence in Vancouver. My second residence is in Vancouver, so always like to get up there and I'll spend two or three weeks uh, making the rounds of the 30 or so juniors that I hold and get updates on their project. Well, Mickey, it's always a real pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you shortly. Thanks so much for joining me from one of my hometowns, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks. Waiting for you to get down here. All right. We'll burn a steak and drink a beer on a farm. Sounds like fun, buddy. Sounds like fun. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye. I've been chatting with Mickey Fulp, the mercenary geologist. Mickey is a shareholder of all of the junior mining companies that he mentioned on the program. I am not. Mickey's website is mercenarygeologist.com. This is an unsponsored segment of the Ellis Martin Report, and I am indeed Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jay Martin, the president of Cambridge House International, who is once again putting forth the International Mining Conference of Vancouver, B.C., on May 15th and 16th coming up next week. This is a premier event with top keynote speakers representing the resource sector. It will take place at the scenic Vancouver Convention Center East, overlooking the water at one of the most beautiful spots in North America. Go to cambridgehouse.com and click onto the event using the promo code Ellis Martin and receive a $10 discount. Let's chat with Jay. Jay, welcome back to the program. Hey Ellis, it's really good to be back. Jay, I'm very excited about this event, as I always am each year. It's a great reason to visit Vancouver, get educated, meet with friends and listeners old and new. We're about a week away. I can't wait to head up to Vancouver. You've changed the name of the conference, though. Any particular reason for that? You know, there, there isn't really a particular reason other than we got a lot of people phoning in last year who were confused about the title. The focus of this event has always been to bring in 
an international speaker roster, an international company roster, and an international investor roster. And so we felt this name better reflected that. Indeed, you have a great roster of speakers, most of whom I am familiar with. I know that investors from all over the world love to come to Vancouver because it's a beautiful city especially in May. You can take advantage of the local culture and cuisine, the surrounding water in mountains, and also learn. It's a learning experience in the resource world. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Vancouver is beautiful in May. And we've got a pretty exciting speaker roster this year. There's a few names that people in this sector are going to be super familiar with. Peter Schiff's coming back. Frank Holmes is coming back. Brent Cook, David Morgan. These are individuals who have had massive followings in this space for a very long time. And you know, a personal favorite of mine is Frank Holmes. I've been following Frank Holmes since long before I ever met him. And now I get the opportunity to work with him on a frequent basis, which is amazing. Incredibly intelligent, but he's very, very inspirational just as a human being. And I I love working with him. But there's a few speakers that are maybe more off the radar that I'm personally really excited about. And one being Chris Perry. Chris Perry is Equity Guru. Equity.guru is his site. And Chris has been speaking for us now for only a couple of years, but he's got a, a very unique style of analyzing companies. He can be very critical, often very comical, and he draws in a much younger demographic than we've historically seen at our conferences. And I enjoy his writing. I think he's really strong. I noticed that he really fills a room and he's very engaging, easy to listen to. Yeah, he has a lot of pop culture references in his analysis. And, you know, it's just a refreshing take on an industry that's had a very similar approach for a long time. And, of course, Frank Holmes takes a lot of notes. He never stops learning. He's a very nice person and very connected to all the generations, I believe. Absolutely. I always feel very inspired and energetic when I leave a Frank Holmes keynote. Now, you've got 70 companies, give or take a few, that are going to be exhibiting at the event. What are we going to see now that's different from a year ago when we spoke, Jay? There's been an absolute surge in interest on energy metals. So anything that's contributing to battery technology or the generation of electricity is getting a special focus. We have a large selection of precious metals, explorers on the floor. I think we have all the best uranium deals in the country present at this conference. Does that mean there's a shift away from precious metals or does it just mean that the space is getting larger, more complex? more interesting? That's a really good question. You know, I don't think there's a shift away from precious metals. And I say that based on the attendees and investors I speak with at the conference, the size of the room when we have some of our precious metals keynotes on stage, and my personal approach to investing in this sector. But we're seeing a lot of new money enter the space, younger investors enter the space. And in that demographic, in that population, absolutely, I see a bigger appetite for technology-focused metals because they can understand the why. Right. And I think it's a more compelling story. We're all obsessed with entrepreneurs like Elon Musk. We want to follow their path. And if we can participate in some way by investing in the raw materials, then we want to do that. It puts some teeth into the sector, makes it less speculative. These minerals and minerals need to be produced. They are being produced. The demand is there, especially coming out of Asia. It's not a fear story. It's a positive story. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a story of abundance and of the future. And it's it's mainstream. Are you going to be doing the deal room? Absolutely, we're doing the deal room. Yeah, this is my favorite feature that we've launched in the last several years. And we've gotten more positive feedback on this feature than ever before. And it really has become a conference within our conference. So this May, the deal room, this is an opportunity for all of our investors to book one-on-one private meetings with company CEOs or conference keynotes. This is an opportunity you really can't get anywhere else. And I anticipate during the two-day conference, we'll probably book somewhere between 500 and 700 private one-on-one meetings between investors and companies. Now, that's incredible. Now, of course, people that are listening that are not familiar familiar with the deal room are wondering, 
How are you going to pull this off? Really, I think of it like a high volume business district lunch restaurant in that we get people in and out of their tables really efficiently. And so when company executive comes to the reception at the front of the deal room, a host takes them to the table. They're offered coffee along the way. It's full service. You know, I've got a meeting at 2 p.m. right this way. We have you at table eight. We turn the tables over every 20 minutes and there's a clock in the room and our staff are very disciplined at making sure we turn those tables over on time. It really gives the investors, and what I noticed in January at your last conference, I was running into so many more investors than I've seen before, listeners quoting my segments on companies, and they were asking very specific questions. They were really engaged. It gives investors a chance to get answers to hard questions from company executives who will be there. Yeah, and that's so important, right? I mean, you know, if you're investing in the venture business, it's always risky. It's inherently risky. And you're rarely investing in a a large team of people. I mean, you are, but you're trusting the integrity and the decision-making and the work ethic of generally one or two individuals. And that's who you can meet with in the deal room. So you register for the deal room, you can peruse the list of companies exhibiting, and you can select meetings. And it's so critical to build relationships with the CEOs you're investing in. It's a people business first, right? And I want to know and I want to trust the people that I'm investing in before I hand over a check. So this is that opportunity. And why would you invest in anything? I mean, we don't buy cars or homes, any big ticket items without getting to know the people directly that are involved. Why would you invest in a company without knowing the management? 100%. To be honest, Ellis, that's the one piece of criteria that I focus on above everything else. And sometimes that's all I focus on because if I believe in somebody and I believe in their vision and their work ethic and then the decisions they're going to make, the people they're going to bring on board, the team they're going to build, right? That's what it all comes down to. Remind us again when and where the show is taking place. The show is May 15th and 16th at the Vancouver Convention Center. Tickets are available at cambridgehouse.com. Jay Martin, once again, it's always great to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you next week in Vancouver. Thanks again for joining me today in the program. I can't wait, Ellis. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Jay Martin, the president of Cambridge House International, presenting the International Mining Conference in Vancouver, B.C. on May 15th and 16th. Coming up next week, go to CambridgeHouse.com and click on to the event. Use the promo code Ellis Martin and receive a $10 discount. For Cambridge House International and the International Mining Conference in Vancouver, I'm Ellis Martin. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the proof. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.